Father, thank you so much just for gathering us together. Lord, thank you for this wonderful fellowship of believers, Lord. And I pray, God, that you would continue to empower and embolden us by the power of your spirit, God. Uh, we don't want to stand rudely against the world. We've got to speak the truth in love. Uh, so, but we want to be bold in what you've called us to do. And so we pray, God, that you would arm us, that you would equip us, that you pour your spirit out upon us, Lord, and that we just be accurate and appropriate reflections of you, Lord, that you would shine in and through and uh, out from us and that others might come to know you by your work in us. So God, give us ears to hear you today, and we'll give you praise in Jesus' holy name. Amen. So in verse uh, 23 of chapter 24, if you remember right, if you were with us last week, you recall that Isaiah set our focus, put or placed our attention upon a prophetic picture A time in which the Lord will rule the earth uh, victoriously and gloriously from Mount Zion there in Jerusalem. And chapter 25 is the response of praise that overflows from his heart as a result of this coming reality. The day in which the earth undergoes renovation and restoration and God's will is done on earth even as it is in heaven. Today, there is a disconnect. It's impossible to really understand the intent or the purpose of God in the creation of the world as we see it. Meaning that we don't really see a world that is in harmony with God, uh, that is in step or in stride with God, but rather we see a world that is in rebellion against God, that is steeped in and suffering the consequences of that rebellion. Well, in like manner, we can't really see God's purpose and intent of man as we look at man uh, or look upon mankind today because man is suffering the ramifications resulting from sin and the fallen nature that we are born with. And this is why we pray as Jesus instructed, uh, saying, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Notice, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Guys, you don't need to be a Bible scholar to recognize the fact that presently, speaking generally, God's will is not being done on the earth. Why? Well, because God has given man free will. But free will is not really free will unless God honors it as such. And man has chosen to impose his will over God's will. To destroy himself and to destroy others through sin, to refuse God, to rebel against God. And the result is the world as we see it today. But how we... As believers in Jesus Christ long for that day, amen, when we see with our eyes the world as God intended, his kingdom come, his will being done on earth even as it is in heaven. Guys, heaven is not having the issues that we have on earth. Believe you me, things are going exactly as God intends them to go. Heaven is in perfect harmony with God, and the day is coming, can you say praise God? The day is coming when the earth will be in step and in stride with God as well. And so let's take and turn our attention to the very first verse of the 25th chapter of the book of Isaiah, 
He writes, O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name. For you have done wonderful things. Your counsels of old are faithfulness and truth. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I think we could stop and spend significant time. Matter of fact, we will. We're going to stop and spend some time right here in this very first verse. Isaiah's heart overflows. Look at these words. O Lord, you are my God. God. And you can parse that in so many ways. Oh Lord, you are my God. 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 Oh Lord, you are my God, you see. It's just all of these are words that are all about personal relationship. They're all about glorification. They're all about exaltation. He's addressing the Lord, Yahweh. He says, you, you, Yahweh. In other words, he separates him, he singles him out, so to speak, from any other option, any other being, any other thing. God, you and you alone are my, what? My friend? Uh, My associate? Uh, You you are my uh, co-laborer? No, you are my God, my Elohim, right? Uh, Which is an acknowledgement. Think about this. Oh, Yahweh, you are my Elohim. This is an acknowledgement of the plural nature of the singular God that we serve. We've mentioned before, you guys, when you throw the I am on the end of a Hebrew word, it takes it from the singular to the plural, And so we see this in scripture, right? So you have a seraph, which would be an angel, and then you have the seraphim, which would be multiple angels. You have a cherub, which would be a singular. You have cherubim, which would be uh, multiple. Well, the three persons of the one true God, ladies and gentlemen, is not a hidden mystery in scripture. It is plainly displayed and declared throughout. But Isaiah says, you are my God. It is a public declaration Isaiah is not ashamed of his relationship with God, his subservience to God, his worship, his exaltation, his dedication to and appreciation of God. Guys, these are words of relationship, of praise, of exaltation, of glorification. They're words of faith, of trust in God, of humility before God. And by the way, This is the same God revealed in and by Jesus Christ. So should I say, this is your God as well. And it should be found in your heart to worship him, to praise him, to exalt him, and to glorify his name. Notice he says, I will exalt you. Two things with this. Number one, you might note that praise or worship, to praise or to worship is to exalt. What does this word mean? It means to lift, to set on high, and I like this one, even to heave. Guys, I want you to think about the intentional force behind the word heave. That does not conjure in our minds a little bit of effort. For me to heave something, it takes all of my might. It takes all of my strength, all my focus, all my attention. I want to heave God, the name of God. I want to heave God up. I want to set him on high as 
high as I possibly can. I want to acknowledge that he is infinitely higher than all my ways, worthy of everything I can bring and beyond. And number two, we note that praise and worship is a matter of the will. I will, listen to me, worship, though it may or may not involve feelings, should never be only all about feelings. Guys, we are to worship God intentionally. May I say, with a decision. Does that make sense to you? You and me, we need to purpose in our heart to worship God, listen, whether we feel like it or not. Because God is worthy of all power, of all blessing, of all honor, all glory, all praise, whether we feel like it or not. In the words of Charles Spurgeon, if I did not praise and bless Christ my Lord, I should deserve to have my tongue torn out by its roots from my mouth. You like that? If I did not bless and magnify his name, I should deserve that every stone I tread on in the streets should rise up to curse my ingratitude. For I am a drowned debtor to the mercy of God over head and ears to infinite love and boundless compassion. I am a debtor. Are you not the same? Then I charge you by the love of Christ. Awake. Awake your hearts now to magnify his glorious name. Think about that. For you have done wonderful things. Notice that worship involves reflection. Remembrance. You have done wonderful things. When you begin to remember and reflect on the wonderful things that God has done, it's just not difficult to make the decision to worship him. At this point, your worship involves the mind, the intellect, not just emotion. Guys, think for just a moment. I'm going to give you just a moment. Think for just a moment upon the wonderful works of God. What did you think of that last breath you just took? It was pretty nice, wasn't it? Ladies and gentlemen, you and me, we need to realize we enjoy each breath at the pleasure of God. He gives us life. He is our protector, our provider. He is our salvation. He is our sanctification. He has given us his spirit. He has sealed us by his spirit for the day of redemption. He's given us gifts of his spirit. He's broken our chains. He set us free uh, from the bondage of sin. He is our strength. He is our joy. He is our peace. He is our healer. He is our hope. He is our help. He's become for us wisdom from God, righteousness from God. Creation is filled with his glory. How we should worship him, you see. For he has done wonderful things. As the psalmist declared, many, O Lord my God, are your wonderful works which you have done. And your thoughts toward us cannot be recounted to you in order. If I would declare and speak of them, they are more than can be Numbered. Think about that. Your counsels of old are faithfulness and truth. 
Moses said that like this. He said, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do? Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? Or as the apostle Paul put it, let God be true, but every man a liar. Ladies and gentlemen, aren't you glad that the word of God is faithfulness and truth? Come on. Aren't you glad that the word of God is faithfulness and truth? Aren't you glad that God keeps his word? Think about it like this. What if God was like man? You know, he issues a promise. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. But then you did something that just kind of got under his skin. You know, you were just being irritating, frustrating, slipping and sliding and aggravating to him. And so he said, you know what, scratch that. I've changed my mind. Or what if the guarantee was issued? If you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sin, to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. But then one day, he just got fed up with all the sin. And he said something like, hey, you know what? This promise only goes so far. Guys, we'd all be sunk. But can we give God praise? Because heaven and earth will pass away, but his word will never by no means pass away. His counsels of old are faithfulness, and they are truth. In verse two, he says, for you have made a city a ruin, a fortified city a ruin, a palace of foreigners to be a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, the strong people will glorify you. The city of the terrible nations will fear you. Now, Isaiah doesn't mention any city in particular. Seems like he leaves that out intentionally because the reference is to the righteous judgment of God in general. That God will cleanse the earth of wickedness and the strong will glorify him and those who once struck fear in the hearts of others will themselves fear God. And he says in verse four, for you have been a strength to the poor, a strength to the needy in his distress, a refuge from the storm, a shade from the heat for the blast of the terrible ones is a storm against the wall. And you will reduce the noise of aliens as heat in a dry place, as heat in the shadow of a cloud. The song of the terrible ones will be diminished. Guys, the day is coming when God will do away with the wicked and the righteous will rejoice on the earth. You understand? A couple of things here in verse 4. First of all, every now and then you'll hear someone say something to the effect of, well, you know, God helps those who help themselves. And it's one of those phrases that people who don't really know their Bible think it's in their Bible. It's not, okay? Uh, The truth is, God helps those who recognize that they can't help themselves. As the psalmist said, Lord, who is like you, delivering the poor from him who is too strong for him? Yes, the poor and the needy from him who plunders him. Later on in Isaiah 66, we'll read where the Lord says, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build me, and where is the place of my rest? For all these things my hand has made, and all those things exist. 
says the Lord. But on this one will I look, on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. Listen, if you're in a place where you're feeling that you're at your end, not sure how you're going to make it, you're broken, you're contrite, as bad as that feels, it's not a bad place to be in. Because you're in a place, good news, where God can help you, okay? He gives strength to the needy in his distress. Psalm 34, the Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and save such as have a contrite or broken spirit. It's when we don't think that we need God's help. That's really when we're in a bad way and in a bad place, The second thing here is that we note that God becomes whatever we may need in our time of trouble. He meets our every need. To the weak, he becomes strength. In the storm, he is our shelter. Uh, When the heat is on, he is our shade. God will meet us where we're at. He will minister to us in that place, and he will lift us up from there. Praise God. Now look at verse 6. And in this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of choice pieces, a feast of wines on the lees, of fat things full of marrow, of well-refined wines on the lees. Now, guys, there's a little debate as to where what the Bible refers to as the marriage supper of the Lamb. How many of you heard of this? The marriage supper of the Lamb. There's a little debate as to where exactly this will take place. Uh, Revelation chapter 19 verse 9 assures us of the fact that it definitely will be a blessed event. Blessed is the one, right, who will partake and will be a a person there uh, in this feast, at this feast. But some believe that uh, this feast will be in heaven. But if what Isaiah is pointing to here is that one you know, the very same feast, then it appears that it'll take place on earth. Could this be a different feast? It could be. And you know I'm down for more than one, right? We're all down for more than one feast with the Lord, aren't we? Okay. Uh, But this feast, let's just presume it's the same feast that Jesus referred to will take place in Jerusalem, in this mountain, he says, and it will be, notice, for all people, There will be those from every tribe, from every tongue, from every people and every nation gathered to this feast. As Jesus said, and I say to you that many will come from the east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. You see, when Jesus is ruling and reigning, when he abolishes wickedness and establishes righteousness, that is his kingdom upon the earth, this uh, this thousand year reign of Christ, we call it the millennial reign of Christ. Two kinds of people will enter his kingdom. Number one, resurrected believers. When Jesus rules and reigns, by the time the Lord returns to the earth, you will have received your new, improved, upgraded resurrection bodies. And family, you're going to be at this party. 
The second kind of person that will enter into the kingdom is those whom the Bible refers to as the tribulation saints. We spoke last week of this great awakening that will take place upon the earth during the great tribulation, uh, that people will be coming to Christ in droves by the tens and tens of thousands, by the hundreds of thousands, by the millions, I would dare even say uh, billions, but the only question I presented was which people will it be? Yeah, and if you're kind of curious about what I mean by that, you can go back and listen to last week's study. But many of these people who come to Christ in the millennial, or pardon me, in the great tribulation, will be martyred for their faith. But there will be a few, very few, relatively speaking, by comparison, who will make it to the end of the great tribulation and they will see Jesus return from heaven. And the enemies of Jesus at that point will be killed. Those who've come to know him and love him will enter into the kingdom in the body that they have, just like the body that you have now. They will repopulate the earth and have radical stories to tell their kids. But once that's all established, once he returns, there you are with your resurrected body. There they are, you know, having made it through the great tribulation. The wicked have been destroyed. The righteous have been established. Listen to me, Jesus is going to throw a party. A feast of, well, the word is choice pieces. Well-refined wine on the lees. Fat things full of marrow. Translation, all diets out the window. No expense spared for this feast. Ladies and gentlemen, this is a victory banquet thrown by the king of kings, a party the likes of which this world has never seen. And in Matthew 26, Jesus makes mention again of the time that he will dine with his disciples and that he is looking forward to it. Jesus is excited about it, and you and me, we should be too. It's going to be glorious, and I can't wait to dine with my Lord. And he will, verse 7, destroy on this mountain the surface of the covering cast over all people and the veil that is spread over all nations. And he will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the rebuke of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. Man, it just keeps getting better, doesn't it? God will destroy the covering, the veil that is over or spread over all nations. Now, what veil is that? Well, it could be a reference to death. We know the day is coming when God will abolish death itself. It is the last enemy, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 26 tells us, that will be destroyed. Revelation, how many of you can't wait for the day that death will be destroyed? Come on, that's an every hand in the building kind of a response, isn't it? Revelation chapter 20 and verse 14 tells us that death will be cast into the lake of fire. Death will be, somebody give God praise, swallowed up in victory, amen? Amen. Ladies and gentlemen, Freud was wrong when he said, and finally there is the painful riddle of death for which no remedy at all has yet, be fa- has yet been found, nor probably ever will be. Listen to me. That's the sad, hopeless state of the unbeliever. 
My Bible says that Jesus has conquered death and Isaiah makes it clear, he gives us the, he makes the triumphant declaration that the day is coming when God will swallow up death forever. But this veil could also be a reference to the veil that is over the hearts, not only of Israel, but of everyone who cannot see Jesus for who he is. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 tells us that when someone turns to the Lord, that's when the veil is removed. You know, he's talking in Corinthians how the natural man can't discern the spiritual matters for they're spiritually discerned and there's just a veil, there's a blindness over the heart, over the mind of the unbeliever and that veil uh, is removed when they come to the Lord Jesus Christ. And on this day that Isaiah is speaking of, everyone will see Jesus for who he is. The holy, loving, righteous, gracious, and merciful God. The veil will be destroyed. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. Tears of oppression. Tears of depression. Of worry, anxiety, loneliness, and loss. There will be no more sorrow, no more pain. For the former things will have passed away. What a beautiful, precious promise. Can I take you back and remind you, aren't you so glad that the counsels of old are faithfulness and truth? And the rebuke of his people, he will take away from all the earth. What does that mean? It means that when we see him, we'll be like him. You won't have a sin nature anymore. There will be no need for the rebuke of his people. Right now, we need it, don't we? Come on, somebody, testify. Our tendency is to wander away from him. We sing the song, right? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. We drift towards sin, but guys, in this day, in that day, sin will no longer trouble you, will no longer tempt you, until that day, <laughs> man, we thank God for his faithful rebuke, don't we? He leaves the 99, man. He seeks after the one because God loves you. Now, verse 9. And it will be said in that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him and he will save us. This is the Lord we have waited for him. We will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. I mean, you know, I mean, it just keeps getting better. Unashamed, unafraid, this is our God. We have waited for him and he will save us. This is the company that you're in currently. Uh, you and me, we are waiting upon the Lord. We long for his return, the fullness of his salvation. You know, as Peter said, we don't see him now, but we love him, whom having not seen yet, you love. And the day will come when we look upon him and our soul will rejoice. 
We will be glad, as Isaiah says here, and rejoice in his salvation. Let's not miss that, by the way. It's not our salvation. It's nothing of our creation. It's his salvation. And we rejoice in it, don't we? And in verse 10, for on this mountain, the hand of the Lord will rest and Moab shall be trampled down under him as straw is trampled down for the refuse heap. And he will spread out his hands in their midst as a swimmer reaches out to swim. And he will bring down their pride together with the trickery of their hands. The fortress of the high fort of your walls he will bring down, lay low, and bring to the ground down to the dust. For on this mountain, the hand of the Lord will rest. God's hand of favor, of power, of glory will rest on Jerusalem. There will be no doubt, believe you me, after the great tribulation, when Jesus is ruling from Jerusalem, all the world will know the hand of the Lord rests there. It won't be moving from place to place, city to city, this location to that location, as did the tabernacle. You see the reference there? There's not going to be a moving, a relocating. Now we're here and we move to there as the tabernacle in the days of old. No, his hand will rest. It will be secure. It will be settled in Jerusalem. And Karen, if you want to make your way forward here, we're going to start moving toward our close. And Moab shall be trampled down under him. The Bible teaches that when Jesus rules the earth, he will do so with a rod of iron. That is, with authority and righteousness. There will be, listen to me, what we would refer to as a zero tolerance policy in place for rebellion when Jesus is reigning. The proud, the rebellious who would in the course of time try and come against or in some way challenge him, the Bible declares, will be dashed to pieces like a potter's vessel. They'll be brought low like a swimmer pulling down water. They'll be laid low, brought down to the ground, down to the dust. And so we see a picture. Here's what I want you to, you're kind of your final takeaway here, okay? We see a picture of the Lord's hand of blessing resting on Mount Zion and his feet trampling Moab in judgment. Well, you get the picture, don't you? Uh, there are two choices, two destinies. Two paths set before us. You might say a narrow road and a broad road. One, the narrow way leads to a place of blessing, of life everlasting, no more death, no more sorrow, no more pain. But it's not the easy way. In the here and now, it is difficult. So, few will find it. 
The other is a place of destruction, of sadness, of sorrow, isolation, pain, and condemnation. But man, it's an easy road. Uh, It's broad. It's filled with the ways of this world. It is the path of least resistance. And many will take that road. In another place, God said it like this. He said, I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, God says, choose life that both you and your descendants may live, that you may love the Lord your God, that you may obey his voice, and that you may cling to him. Listen to me, for he is your life and the length of your days. Well, how, how do I choose life? Come on, somebody. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Choose Jesus Christ. Turn from your sin. Believe on him and live. Let's bow our hearts. God, we thank you for your word to us today. Surely you are great and you are greatly to be praised. So God, I pray that you would just teach our hearts what it means to heave you high, to worship you with decision, with intention, for you have done wonderful things and your counsels of old are faithfulness and truth. And we long for the day that we will see you face to face and death is swallowed up in victory. Guys, while our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, I just want to say, listen, to choose life is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Many people think that if they do enough good things, somehow that'll make up for the bad things and God will let them into heaven. Listen, the wages of sin isn't do good things. It's death. It's eternal separation from God. Only Jesus Christ was qualified to pay the price being tempted in all ways as we are yet without sin. He's the only one who could make a perfect sacrifice for sin. Therefore, it's only in Christ that God's wrath against sin is satisfied. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Believe on the Lord today and be saved. So if that's something that's resonating in you, like maybe never before, like, man, I'm not sure what's going on here, but my heart's kind of, you know, pumping, my mind's kind of reeling. I Listen, the Lord is knocking on the door of your heart. And if you will hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Open your heart. Today is the day of salvation. Turn from your sin, trust in him. So 
if this is happening for you, and I don't care how old you are, how young you are, I don't care where you've been, I don't care what you've done, I don't care if it's your first time here, you've been here on and off, I don't, it doesn't matter. What matters is, have you given your heart, your life to Jesus Christ? Have you turned from your sin? Do you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? Not like, oh yeah, I believe he was around and stuff. No, do you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? And if that's happening for you right here and right now, I just want to pray for you. So we're not talking about playing church or joining church, okay? This isn't what this is about. If you need to give your life to Christ, can I pray for you? I'm going to ask you just to show me who you are. Take a step of humility, of boldness. I want you just to raise your hand. Say, you know what? This moment's for me, and I need Jesus to come into my life. Forgive me of my sin to save me. Anybody? You see? God bless you. God bless you. Anybody else? Don't miss your moment, man. Don't let pride hold you back. I'm just, I'm begging you. Anybody else? Okay. Well, listen. God loves you. Christ died for you. So I'm just going to encourage you to start from ground zero. Just come before the Lord. And just tell him, Lord, I turn from my sin and I trust in you. I believe on you, Lord Jesus. Please take your home in my heart. Be exalted on the throne of my heart and fill me with your Holy Spirit. God, help me to live my life for you. Not ashamed of you. That you would have your way in me completely. And thanks for putting my name in your book of life. Listen, I want to encourage you that if you prayed a prayer like that, that God has heard you, Christ is coming to you, and you're a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are made new. I'm telling you, the counsels of old are faithfulness and they are truth. Receive it today. Father, thank you again for the faithfulness of your word. We love you. We thank you, God, that you have first loved us. We worship you. We adore you. We give honor and glory to you. In Jesus' holy name, amen.